how do normal, flawed people serve Christ and accomplish eternal objectives when we're so weak and the task is so huge, right? We need the power of God. How can you lead if you're sick, if you're stuck, if you're in jail, if you're fired, if you've lost uh, your freedom of movement, your freedom to operate? Can you have an influence? Can you have a ministry when life gets very difficult and you get stuck? Hi, this is Joel Rosenberg, uh, founder and chairman of the Joshua Fund, a ministry to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus, a ministry to preach the gospel, to strengthen pastors and ministry leaders, a ministry to educate the church around the world on what God's heart and plan and purpose is for Israel and her neighbors, a ministry to care for the poor and the needy in the name of Jesus. And uh, this is a podcast that we do to help people understand what God's doing in this region and to be inspired, encouraged, certainly educated about God's heart uh, for ministry, his heart for Israel and her neighbors. Welcome to Inside the Epicenter. Now, my partner in crime, as it were, Carl Muller, who's the executive director of the Joshua Fund, is not with us. He's on a much-needed few days of respite, a little R&R, after spending uh, several weeks with us here in Israel, in Jerusalem, and in the country as we've been going through two conferences, our annual Joshua Fund conferences, where we minister to the pastors and ministry leaders here in the Holy Land. We run two conferences, one for Israeli pastors and ministry leaders and their wives and their teams and the young people that work with them, both Jewish ministry leaders and Arab. And then we run the exact same conference in the West Bank uh, for Palestinian pastors and ministry leaders. No politics, This is not about politics. It's not about the tensions between Israelis and Palestinians. It's not about uh, who should gain what part of the land and what, you know, how to solve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. No, those are important issues, but that's not what we talk about. The name of these conferences are Preach the Word, Shepherd the Flock. Okay, for 11 years, we've been hosting this conference for almost every pastor and ministry leader and, and their spouses that there are in the land and that are available at that time every November to come. Uh, it's an amazing time where we've gotten to spend time with, to learn from, to encourage, equip, refresh the hearts of these saints. And they are saints. Uh, God has saved them and raised them up to be the shepherds of the flock of the people who follow Jesus here in the Holy Land, both Israeli and Palestinian. They're incredibly gifted and they're incredibly brave and bold. And yet they get tired and they get uh, discouraged. Uh, they get run down, especially towards the end of the year. I'm battling a bit of a cold myself as we get to the end of the Western calendar year. And, and so do they, spiritual warfare, all kinds of challenges, financial challenges. And so the Joshua Fund holds these two retreats. Uh, they're more retreats than conferences in the sense that it's not an open invitation to anybody to come. You can't just register online to go. It's an invitation-only event for Israelis and Palestinians uh, to come and to be refreshed. That's the goal. Worship, prayer, fellowship, and the teaching of the Word of God. And the great thing is we don't ask these pastors to come and do the teaching. We ask them to come and let us do the teaching. Let us serve them. And it's just a wonderful time. Again, we've been doing it for 11 years. And it's for me and, and Lynn, it's the highlight of our calendar. Uh, there's a lot of ministry opportunities we love doing with the Joshua Fund. But nothing is more special than being able to encourage and refresh, teach and minister to the ministers here in this land. So we've been going through the book of Acts for the last eight years. Of the 11 years, eight years, we've been going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. And we've come to the end. And in the last podcast, which I encourage you to go back and listen to if you miss, I shared more about the philosophy of these conferences, these retreats, as well as um, a little bit of an overview, some of the themes that we've drawn out from the book of Acts over these last eight years, some of the other books that we taught prior to Acts. And then I look specifically at some lessons from Acts chapter 27, Paul in a shipwreck. How do you lead in a shipwreck? How do you lead when you have no power, no authority, you're a prisoner, and uh, I hope you never are a prisoner. I hope I'm never a prisoner. But the question was, can God use you to lead and influence people who don't know Jesus if you have all your freedoms taken away? 
And it was a fascinating discussion. And I encourage you to go back and listen to those lessons on leadership from the Apostle Paul from Acts chapter 27, leading in a shipwreck. Today, we're going to talk about leading when you're under house arrest. And I began this topic with these sets of questions, right? Can you lead if you're sick, if you're stuck, if you're fired, if you're broke, if you have a medical condition or, or your parents do or your children do, or you have other challenges that are preventing you from traveling, preventing you from going and doing the ministry around your country or around the world that you want to do, that maybe you think, well, God called me to go minister here or there, but now I'm stuck. That happened to all of us, right, during COVID, right? We, we were thinking, wait a minute, I don't understand. I can't even literally leave my house, right? We were told we can't leave your house. And then we were told that you can't go to church and all kinds of things. That was a period where the entire globe was under house arrest. That's not, not, not normally the way we live, but there are times in life when God changes what he's saying to us tactically, right? He has told us in the Great Commission to go, right? Matthew chapter 28, go ye therefore. God's in charge and he's telling you to go and make disciples of all nations, right? That means preaching the gospel. It means helping people make a decision to receive Christ, helping them to grow and mature in their faith, teaching them to obey, Jesus said, everything that I've commanded you. Don't just baptize them, teach them, help them to understand the word of God, preach the word to them, shepherd them as part of the flock of Christ, help them to grow and help them to realize that Christ will be with them always, even to the very end of the age. So go, go and make disciples of all nations, right? Well, okay, that's the macro strategic objective of the church is to go. But sometimes in our own personal lives, God says stay. It's not a contradiction. God sovereignly works. He's got his whole church. Sometimes he's got people on the go. Other times he tells us to stay. But it can be frustrating to stay. Uh, now, sometimes we're like, well, I don't even want to go. Well, that's, that's not good. But, but sometimes you do want to go and you want to serve the Lord. And the Lord says, no, I'm putting restrictions on you. And again, they can be medical. They could be legal. They could be that you've got uh, ill parents that you're like, I can't go serve the Lord in some other place right now. I've got to focus on taking care of my own parents. Or maybe you have a special needs child or several or other challenges of your children. Um, we always have to find ways to minister to people beyond our own family. But sometimes we can't go like we want. And there are a range of different reasons. Uh, and, and so the question is, how do you need when you're under house arrest? And Paul was literally under house arrest in the final chapter of the book of Acts, right? The whole book of Acts is the story that Luke, Dr. Luke writes of the Holy Spirit fulfilling the Great Commission, not to fulfill it, but he's spreading the gospel. The Holy Spirit is spreading the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and even to the very ends of the earth. From Jerusalem to Rome, that's the arc of the narrative of the story, right? Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to pour out his Holy Spirit upon them, and they will be his witnesses. They will tell people the gospel message and, and teach the word of God, preach the word, and they'll plant churches, and they'll win people to Christ, and they'll make disciples in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And, and so we see the Holy Spirit making that all come true. We see it coming to pass through flawed, normal people. Right? We see people who even make mistakes in ministry or have disagreements in ministry. They get in fights sometimes because one person says, we should do ministry this way. And the other group says, we should do ministry that way. Uh, we even see Paul and Barnabas have fights like this. Paul and Luke and Aristarchus have a sharp disagreement. So we see God using ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary objectives. And they're not doing it in their own frail, weak selves. They're doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is one of the major themes. I would argue it's the major theme. How do normal, flawed people serve Christ and accomplish eternal objectives when we're so weak and the task is so huge, right? We need the power of God. We need to not just have the Holy Spirit in us. We need to have the Holy Spirit come upon us and give us power. That's what's promised in Acts chapter 1. That's what we taught about eight years ago when we began uh, this particular series through Acts at the Preach the Word 
shepherd the flock conferences, retreats. Um, and now we, we brought it home. And I taught in Israel on the Israeli side, the final chapter, uh, Acts 28. So I want to take a moment. I'm not going to go through the first part of Acts 28. That's when they're shipwrecked onto Malta and they have an amazing time of ministry there to the islanders in Malta. It's a great story. I encourage you to read it. But I'm going to focus on this issue of Paul, the super apostle, right? The religious terrorist, extremist, dramatically comes to faith in Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus by having this vision of Jesus. It's an incredible supernatural moment. And this horrible, religious, vengeful, bitter, angry, murderous terrorist becomes a follower of Christ. And after a few years of growing in his faith, he becomes used as the most extraordinary apostle in the history of the church. The book of Acts tells us how this happens. But the book of Acts ends in a very curious way. The good news is that the gospel through Paul has reached Rome, the capital, the epicenter of the Roman Empire, right? That's good. But Paul, he wants to just go through Rome on the way to Spain because well, why Spain? I think it's fairly obvious that the gospel was supposed to be taken to the ends of the earth, right? And at the time, people thought the earth was flat, right? So it was perceived that Spain was the end of the earth, literally, okay? They didn't know that the Americas existed, right? South America, Central America, North America. They didn't know that then. They thought that if you take the gospel to Spain, that's the absolute end of civilization, that's what Paul wanted to do. He wanted to fulfill the Great Commission. God bless him. And he wanted to do it not in his strength. He, he boasts in his weakness. Paul had, a, had physical infirmities. He had various challenges that he writes about throughout uh, his epistles. We think of him as this incredibly powerful preacher of the gospel and of the word of God. He's writing 13 books of the New Testament. He's an extraordinary human being, and he is. But it's not him. He keeps saying over and over again, I'm weak, but I'm, I'm a weak vessel through whom the power of the Holy Spirit has used me to accomplish great things. But don't follow me. Only follow me as I follow Christ. Christ is the focus. Christ is the power. Christ is the king. Follow him and follow me as I follow him. But if I ever divert from following him, you follow him. And this is an amazing story. And here we are. We're sort of expecting Right? If we're reading the book of Acts for the first time, or with the intended recipient, this uh, Roman uh, Greek-speaking uh, government official named Theophilus, who's a friend of Dr. Luke, Luke is writing this account to Theophilus, to a specific person. We get to read it, thank God, uh, but it was written to a specific person, Theophilus. And Theophilus is reading, and he's all oh, shipwrecks and storms and the spread of the gospel and planting of churches everywhere. It's amazing. There's challenges. There's persecution. What happens? He's expecting go, go, go. That's the theme that the gospel is going from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. But it ends up at a strange place. The book of Acts ends sort of abruptly. We don't see Paul in this super sermon preaching in the Colosseum. By the way, the Colosseum wasn't yet built. That would be a few more years till the Roman Colosseum was built. So Paul was there in Rome at a time that it didn't exist. But, you know, we kind of have this image of him as Billy Graham, of, of some evangelist preaching to you know tens or hundreds of thousands. But instead, we find Paul in chains, in a house, unable to go anywhere. And in a moment, we're going to walk through that story and we're going to draw out some lessons. Stay with us. We've got a few things we got to tell you about, and then we'll be back on the Inside the Epicenter podcast. Hi, this is Joel Rosenberg. There is nothing more powerful than prayer. We serve a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. So if you would, take a moment right now and pray for our many partners across the Epicenter. Many of them regularly face persecution, harassment, and many, many difficulties. And your prayer could make a tremendous difference in the war against evils that face them. We know how the story ends. Let's pray to that end together. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, 
the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Welcome back to the Inside the Epicenter podcast. I want to share with you the verses of the day. And if you listen to our last podcast, you're going to hear the same verses because I want to share the verses that inspired us to develop this conference, these retreats to equip and encourage and refresh pastors and ministry leaders here in Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Uh, We call those retreats, Preach the Word, Shepherd the Flock. Why do we do that? Because that's what Paul and Peter tell us to do. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we read these words from Paul to his young disciple, Pastor Timothy. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Right? So, so listen to me, Paul, saying, because God's going to judge you, Timothy. He's going to judge you on this standard. And he's going to appear in his kingdom, it says. And what does he say in verse 2? Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word of God. Don't just tell people what you think about things. Don't just be a commentator, an opinion writer. Preach the word of God. Be ready to preach the word in season and out of season. Use the word of God to reprove people, to rebuke, to exhort, to encourage with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. There's going to be a time coming in the last days. People aren't going to listen to the word of God. Uh, They're going to want to have their ears tickled, Paul says. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They're going to listen to people that tell them what they want to hear, that the Bible isn't true, that God doesn't really care about this type of morality or this mission. They're going to turn their ears away from the truth, and they're going to turn aside to myths, Paul says. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. If you sum all that up, Paul says, you're going to be judged, Timothy. You're born again. You're saved. You're not going to go to hell. But Timothy, you are a pastor. You're an evangelist. And your job is not tell people what you think. Your job is to teach people the word of God. Preach the word. But the other part of the job is to shepherd the flock. And this is what we get from 1 Peter chapter 5, when he writes an epistle, and it's amazing, 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, therefore, I exhort the elders, the pastors, the leaders of the churches among you, as your fellow elder, and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Peter saying, I saw Christ, I know Christ, I saw him suffer and die, and I saw him rise again, the glory of the resurrection. And I'm sharing with you, pastors and elders and leaders of of the church, shepherd the flock, he says. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, right? Not under compulsion, not because you have to do it, but voluntarily because you want to serve the Lord. You want to help shepherd the flock. You want to help people grow and mature and be protected in the church, protected from the evil ones. According to the will of God, do this because God wants you to do it. And don't do it for sordid gain to make money that this is, you know, somehow you can fleece the flock, right? Don't steal the money from the sheep. Don't do this for sordid gain, but do it with eagerness. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. Don't be on your high horse and sort of forcing people to obey you. No, no, serve them. Prove to be an example that the flock is willing to follow. And when Jesus, the chief shepherd, appears... If you're doing this, if you're living this life, if you're preaching the word and shepherding the flock in a humble, spirit-led way, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Those are great messages and and, and, uh, something for us to really be encouraged by. 
And that leads us to some prayer requests. Uh, we're going to go through a, uh, some, this passage in a moment of Acts 28. But I want to encourage you to be praying for the pastors, the ministry leaders, their wives, their teams here in the Holy Land. Israelis and Palestinians under tremendous pressure. They get tired. They're under spiritual attack. They're, uh, they're under pressure from societies that don't want to hear what they have to say from the word of God. They don't want to hear the word of God, most people. And so we need to encourage and refresh these shepherds. And we need to encourage them and pray for them that the Lord would strengthen them so they will boldly and faithfully preach the word and lovingly and humbly shepherd the flock, just as the Holy Spirit has taught us in the scriptures. Okay, we're back and we're going to look at Acts chapter 28, not exhaustively, um, not the way we would if we were teaching this on a Sunday morning and we were just going through verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But this is just intriguing to me, and I want to um, walk you through it. Beginning in verse 11 of chapter 28. Okay. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship, which had wintered on the island of Malta, and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. And we put in at Syracuse, and we stayed there for three days. Stop for just one moment. I just have to say... Paul spent three days in Syracuse, which is an Italian city. I was born in the city of Syracuse in upstate New York, central New York. And then I came back to Syracuse to study in my, um, for my undergraduate degree in filmmaking, communications, um, and Middle Eastern studies in college. And that's uh, Syracuse University is where I met my wife, Lynn, and uh, we, where we fell in love. So, but I will, I will tell you, we both Lynn and I joke that we understand why Paul only spent three days in Syracuse because the Syracuse that we met and uh, fell in love in, it, it, we called it Siberacuse, no excuse, zero cues. I mean, it was incredibly frigid, cold, uh, snow often above our heads. I mean, it's just crazy weather. I don't know why anybody lives there, but uh, this is where Tom Cruise was born and raised. This is where I was born and uh, this is where Lynn and I met. So anyway, we're glad we spent four years there. But we understand why Paul only spent three days. Okay, different Syracuses. I just hope you get the joke. We continue. Uh, Paul basically uh, gets himself to Rome. The next few verses is the process he took, the, the places he stayed, the believers he met along the way until he actually gets to the capital of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome itself. And it says in verse 16, when we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. In a few moments, we'll see that he was living in a rented house. Okay, so he wasn't put in the Mamertine prison where he will later uh, be rearrested after this stint in under house arrest. Then he's released and he does more ministry. We think he might even have gotten to Spain, but then he's rearrested as Caesar Nero becomes more powerful and more wicked and more crazy. And then Paul is put in the dungeon, in really the, the worst prison that you can imagine, uh, the Mamertine prison in Rome and that's where eventually he's tried and convicted and beheaded. Uh, but this is not that yet. He's, a, he's in a rented house. He's by himself. His colleagues, Luke and Aristarchus, don't live with him. But he's not free. He's in chains. And there's always at least one Roman soldier with him. Verse uh, 17. After three days in this new uh, rented house, Paul calls together those who were the leading men of the Jews, and when they came together, he began saying to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. Okay, these were false charges that the Jewish religious leadership in Israel were pressing against Paul because they hated Paul's message. Paul had betrayed them in their view. He had been a uh, high religious extremist with them, and now he's become a follower of Jesus. He's no longer persecuting followers of Jesus. He is trying to make followers of Jesus. He's trying to preach the gospel and make disciples. And the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem hated Paul because of what he stood for and because he had left them and gone to the other side in their view. But Paul is explaining what we have learned earlier in the book of Acts, that the Roman authorities um, have imprisoned him and tried Paul, but found him not worthy of anything that would require death. And yet the Jewish leadership was pushing, putting political pressure on the Roman leadership in Caesarea, in Palestine, to 
keep Paul in prison or to actually execute him. And Paul ultimately has to appeal to Caesar, meaning there, as a Roman citizen in the first century, if you felt you were, you were getting a, an unfair trial, you could say, listen, I want my case to be heard before Caesar in Rome. And that's what Paul did. That's the card uh, Paul played, as it were. And that's why he's in Rome now. But he's explaining to the Jewish leaders, listen, if you've heard about me, you've heard that I've done all these horrible things, but I haven't. And I've done nothing worthy of death. But when the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem objected to me being released, Paul says, I was forced to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any accusation against my own nation. Right? He doesn't have any problem with Judaism or with Israel. Paul is Jewish. Paul is part of the nation of Israel. But they had a problem with me. I didn't have a problem with them. But when they wanted me to be killed and they wanted me to be, uh, you know, on all these false charges, I had to appeal to Caesar to make my case. And that's why I'm here. For this reason, verse 20, he says, therefore, I request to see you and to speak with you. Uh, for I am wearing this chain. This, you know, he's, he probably lifts up the chain and rattles it. You got the Roman guard right next to him listening to all this. He said, I'm wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. I have strong beliefs in what the prophets told us, and that's why I'm here. That's his opening message to the Jewish leadership that's come to visit him at his invitation at this rented house. Now, what do they say? They say to him, well, actually, we've neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brothers from Israel come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. Paul must have been like, everybody hates me. The whole Jewish world knows me. And so he's sort of preemptively making his case to them. And they're like, actually, we haven't heard any of this. And you say, well, why? Well, Paul was coming and he got shipwrecked. No one else has gotten there before him, right? No one else was crazy enough to get in a ship. No, nobody from Jerusalem got in a ship and was trying to race to Rome to say bad things about Paul. Maybe they tried to send a letter, but maybe that hadn't arrived yet. Nobody had come yet. Paul had actually made it first. And so they don't know this whole case against Paul. They have not heard this. But they say, but we do desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect of Judaism, this group of people, who of Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that we've heard about, they say. It is known to us, and it is spoken against everywhere. So they understand the controversy over Messianic Judaism, and they're against it. But they haven't heard these specific charges about Paul, okay? So Paul's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. So then, then the Jewish leadership says, this is very interesting, verse 22, but we desire to hear from you, okay? We want to know, because this is a big controversy in our area. So, yeah, tell us what you believe. We want to hear this from you. So what they do is they decide to get a larger group of Jewish leaders, we don't know how many were in the house, the rented house that day. But what they decide in the text is, let's bring more. And what it says is, verse 23, when they had set a day for Paul to share his views, explain uh, for him to preach the word, preach the gospel to them, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. So whatever number came the first time, this is a much larger group, which means this rented house must be fairly sizable to accommodate all these Jewish leaders who've arrived. And what happens? The text says that Paul explained to them solemnly, like, like carefully, thoughtfully. He, he explained to them, he testified what he knew personally about the kingdom of God. And he tried to persuade them concerning Jesus, that he was in fact, is in fact the Messiah. He used the law of Moses, the text says, and the prophets, okay, from the prophets, from Moses, he's walking these Jewish leaders through the messianic prophecies. And he's probably asked them, doesn't say this, but he's probably asked them to bring scrolls of Moses and the prophets, of the Torah, the first five books of the law, and the prophets, so he can show them and say, look, we all agree that this is what Moses wrote about the Messiah, right? And this is what Isaiah wrote, and this is what Jeremiah wrote, and this is what, you know, Micah wrote, and this is what, you know, the other prophets told us, let's look at those texts. And now let's look at the life of Jesus. That's what he's doing. And he's trying to persuade them, but he's using the word of God. He's not just saying what he thinks. We know he thinks that Jesus is the Messiah. They know he thinks that Jesus is the Messiah. But the question is, is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the fulfillment of actual 
Bible prophecy from the Jewish scriptures, from the Hebrew scriptures. So Paul is walking them through the actual texts and saying, this is what it says. Does this match the life and ministry of Jesus, of Yeshua? Now, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 28, verse 23, that this conversation went from morning to evening. The entire day, this is one long, detailed Bible study. Wow, I would have loved to have been in that room, in that house that day. Uh, And it says in verse 24, some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. The text doesn't say they couldn't believe. It says they wouldn't believe. But some were persuaded. And then the Bible says they basically have a big fight. The Jewish leaders sort of turn to each other and they're having this conversation. What do you think? Well, what do you think? Well, no, I think Paul is right. Look, this is exactly what the... The prophets tell us, this is what Moses tells us, and this is the life of Jesus. I think Paul is right. And the other is like, no, how can you say that? That's crazy. You can't think that. And they have this big fight. And in the end, Paul realizes that some of these Jewish leaders, they're not unable to accept that Jesus does fulfill the teachings of Moses and the prophets. They don't want to listen. They don't want to believe. They're not unable. They're unwilling. And so Paul cites the prophet Isaiah to them. Verse 25 says that uh, Paul gave them one final word, one parting word before they left. He said, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, go to this people, the Jewish people, and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears, they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return. And I, God says, would heal them. But they don't want it. Therefore, Paul says, let it be known to you that this salvation of God, this message of the salvation, the the good news of of the Messiah coming to to forgive us of our sins and adopt us into his family and take us to heaven forever and ever when we die rather than going to hell, this message of salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. And they will listen. That's what Paul says. And that, verse 29, creates another dispute. When he has spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. Why is it a dispute? Because some agree with Paul. They've been convinced. And others are like, no, I don't care what he says. It's wrong. We're not doing this. We don't believe that. That's the fight as they walk out the door. The last two verses of the text say this, and he, Paul, stayed for two full years, two full years, in his own rented quarters, right, under arrest. He's under house arrest for two years, and he welcomed all who came to him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. That's the last word, at least in English, in the book of Acts, unhindered. And you're like, unhindered? Paul's unhinged. What are you talking about? And Luke is unhinged saying it. Paul is under arrest. He He physically cannot leave his own house. He can't go around Rome and teach and preach at the synagogues. He can't go to the churches that have, in fact, been established already in Rome, even before Paul got there. He can't go to Spain. He can't go take the gospel and the word of God all throughout the Roman Empire. He's in one house. Maybe it's a spacious house. He doesn't own it. It's rented. And for two years, he can't go anywhere. How can you say that Paul is ministering with all openness, unhindered. Of course he's hindered. He literally has chains on him, and there's a Roman soldier with him at all times. What is Luke talking about? And the answer is that Paul does not see himself as a victim. Paul doesn't see himself as a prisoner of Rome. Is he a prisoner of Rome? Of course he is. Of course he is. But that's not the way Paul sees it. Paul sees himself as a prisoner of Christ, meaning Christ is the king of the world, not Caesar Nero. Christ is sovereign over all things in the world. Christ decides if Paul's going to be free or 
jailed, right? In chains or free. But Paul's heart is free. His mouth is free. He's free. He's been set free from his sins. He's filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And if God wants him to be locked up for two years in Caesarea or on an island in Malta for three months because he's been shipwrecked or in a house arrest in Rome for two more years, if this is God's sovereign will for his life, fine. That's not him being in prison. He's free wherever God puts him. And God sovereignly decides whether to give him the political and physical freedom to travel and speak. But wherever he is, he's free. That's the way Paul sees himself. Is that the way you see yourself? Maybe you have medical conditions. Maybe you've had a heart attack or you've got chronic diseases that make it difficult for you to even leave your house or your city. Maybe you have financial challenges that aren't your fault, maybe, but they just are what they are, and you don't have the freedom to travel, to go and do ministry in other places. Maybe you have special needs children or one special needs child that that takes all your time and all your money or most of it, and you think, I can't go on a missions trip or I can't go travel around the world. I can't even spend much time at my church because my child needs me. Or you have... Elderly parents, perhaps, or, or parents that are ill, severely ill. And you're like, I, I, I don't have freedom. I mean, I have political freedom. I, I, I have to take care of my parents. That's my responsibility as a Christian. And it is. So I can't go and do all the things that Christ tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. I can't come help you in Israel, Joel. I can't be part of helping reach uh, Israel or Lebanon or Syria or Jordan or Iraq or Egypt or anywhere else in this region, the Palestinians, I can't go teach the word of God there. I can't encourage and equip the church. I would love to go visit Israel. I can't do that. I can't do what God has told me to do because I have these limitations up to and including literally needing to stay at home. Can you lead when you're under house arrest? It's an interesting question. And the answer is yes, right? The answer, we can see it. In Paul's life. He didn't need political freedom. He didn't need money. He knew God personally. He knew the word of God. And God gave him an incredibly fruitful ministry by stopping him. Right? Sorry, what? No, that is, it's counterintuitive, but it's true. Paul had more, he, he bore more fruit because Christ slowed him down, stopped him even from going than Paul would have had if he'd had the freedom to go. What does that mean? Paul, even the most spirit-filled and, and, and gifted evangelist and apostle in human history, if he continued to have the freedom to go preach and teach all throughout Rome, all throughout Italy, even to Spain, the ends of the earth, he would have reached, what, tens of thousands of people? Maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe. Although, you know, he didn't have he didn't have media. He couldn't publish. He, right? he was talking to people face to face. And so he could reach as many people as he could talk to. So let's say that's 100,000. Let's say it's a quarter of a million. That's an awful lot. But let's just say, how many people did he minister to by staying locked up in that rented house in Rome? Billions. Paul reached billions of people by not going anywhere by being under house arrest. Say, what, are you, what are you talking about? He wrote four epistles. I would say four of the greatest epistles among the four greatest epistles in the entire New Testament. He wrote Ephesians, he wrote Colossians, he wrote Philippians, and he wrote Philemon. Those four are among the 13 epistles that Paul wrote, and those four were written while he couldn't go anywhere. And those are some of the greatest passages of scripture in the entire Bible, and they've read, been read by billions of people over the last 2,000 years. The letters to the Ephesians has had profound impact on my life, the others as well. But Paul might not have slowed himself down to write those if God hadn't put him in prison for those two years, right? By going, 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 preaching, teaching, Sometimes that's, that's wonderful, right? With go ye therefore and make disciples. Great. Right. That's the overall objective. But Paul would have reached 
tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, if he continued to go. Paul was stopped by God in order to reach billions instead of hundreds of thousands. Okay? That's a different way of thinking. And so what, what am I trying to say? Am I trying to say that you're going to reach billions from your house? No, not necessarily. What I am saying is Paul didn't get bitter or angry at God because God had constricted his movement. Just the opposite. Paul thought, if God wants to constrict my movement, good. Here I am. I've got a house. Okay, there's a soldier here. Fine. I'll share the gospel with him. And when they bring another soldier to replace that person, I don't think of myself as chained to him. I think of him as chained to me. I'll share the gospel with him. And then the next guy, and then the next guy. And we read, if you, you know, read the read the letters of the Philippians, read the letters of the Romans, read the other letters. The gospel spreads through the entire household of Caesar, through the palace. Why? Because Paul is preaching to one person at a time who then gets released and goes on and does the rest of his job. And like, I was just the, the guy who was in charge of making sure that Paul didn't escape. And you would not believe what he told me. You would not believe the stories he told me. And many of them came to Christ, and they were telling the story of the gospel, telling Paul's story all over Rome, and including throughout the palace of the Caesar. That was one way. And then these letters. And then it wasn't just that. Paul was still discipling, mentoring Luke. Luke was a beloved physician. And Paul described that in the book of Colossians. Luke's training was as a medical doctor, okay? But... God uses Paul to help Luke realize there are some other things you can do besides just be a doctor, even though you're a great doctor and I need you as a doctor. But in Caesarea, don't you think that Paul told Luke, hey, apparently we're going to be here for a long time. Why don't you go out and research the gospel story? Why don't you go talk to Mary? Why don't you go talk to all the original witnesses who were part of the birth life, teaching, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and go right to your friend Theophilus, an orderly account of everything that you've learned. Do the research and write it out. Of course, that's what Luke was doing. What else did he have to do for two years while Paul was in prison in Caesarea? They get to Rome and they've got two more years with nothing to do, but they welcome people into the house. They minister they preach, they teach, they share the gospel with unbelievers. They teach and encourage believers who came to visit. But also they sat down and they wrote. They had time to think. They had time to pray. They had time to, to write, to edit, to get these letters ready. And the book of Acts emerges out of Rome. Because Paul was discipling Luke to have an influence beyond just his medical training. And Paul was using this time to write four of the 13 letters. So what am I trying to say? It's not about the magnitude of the amount of people that you'll reach. It's about the perception of yourself. Are you, do you see yourself as a victim? Are you bitter? Are you angry? Do you feel like, How, I can't have a ministry if I'm locked down? During COVID, did you feel that way? Many people did. I, look, I get that. But it's a matter of perception. Did the U.S. government or the Israeli government or whatever government you're, did they lock you down or did God let them lock you down for that period? I don't want to get into the whole fight over vaccinations and lockdowns. Look, in many ways it was wrong the way governments were taking away our freedoms. Okay, I believe that. But who ultimately let these governments do it? I don't think it was inspired by God. I think it was satanic. But God sovereignly let these things happen. And he did it for a reason. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why would God give us parents that need our attention and restrict us from going? Why does he give us maybe a, a special needs child or other children who just need our focus, our attention, our resources? And we can't go and minister the way we think we ought to, the way we wish we could. Why does he give us physical infirmities? Right? I battle with gout in my left foot, and it often restricts me from going. You know, why does God let that happen? Incredible pain. Is it any different from Paul having physical infirmities and, and saying, I boast my weaknesses? Now, I don't boast my weaknesses. I have many physical frailties. My kids are very, very strong and healthy. I don't, I have a lot of challenges. I wish I didn't. They're embarrassing to me. 
the things that make it difficult for me to do the things that I, I think I'm supposed to do. But, but God lets these things happen. Partly it's to humble me, I'm sure. But also it's to restrict my movement. Now, I'm a person who's been traveling for 20-some years all over the planet, preaching and teaching uh, and speaking to churches and to you know, others. I've got almost a million miles uh, on United alone. <laughs> but about four or five years ago, I began praying, Lord, you know, I'm reading Acts 28, and I just, I'm fixated on it. I just sense, wow, maybe I am just tired, Lord. Maybe I don't want to go everywhere you send me. But that's not true. I am tired. I don't want to. My body's getting a little weaker at 55, you know, but I'm not 85. So I can still go. I can still do things. But it is more challenging today than it was at 35. So I'm willing to go anywhere God takes me. But I, I said, Lord, I sense that you want me not to travel from Israel so much. But if I don't, how am I supposed to have the ministry that you've given me? If a big part of my ministry is educating the church around the world about God's heart and plan and purpose for Israel and the Palestinians and the neighbors, how am I supposed to go do that if I don't go? And yet I find myself being drawn to a life of house arrest. Okay, I, I don't want to literally be arrested. I don't want a Roman soldier in my apartment. Okay, But I have this sense that you want me to travel much, much less. And yet if I do that, how does that not hinder the ministry that you've given me? I brought that up with Lynn and I brought it up with my family and I brought it up with my publisher and I brought it up with the Joshua Fund board and staff. And I, I said, listen, I, I don't know what the answer is, but I would like you to pray with me and for me for wisdom because this house arrest concept is on my heart a lot and I'm not sure what to do with it. And I'll just wrap up this to say that over the last four or five years, the Lord has confirmed in a number of ways, not that I'm not supposed to travel at all, it's not that, but I am supposed to travel much, much less. And he gave me multiple platforms to build, not alone, but with others, to compensate for the lack of travel. One of them is all Israel news and all Arab news. That platform, that digital platform where we're doing news reporting, original reporting, and analysis and exclusive interviews and so forth from Israel, from the region, so that people, believers and unbelievers all over the world can read it and trust the news that they're getting. That emerged during COVID. Strange time to start a new organization, to start a new ministry, try to raise funds for that. But that emerged during the lockdowns of COVID when I literally couldn't go places as much as I wanted to or, or had been thought I was supposed to. Then came TBN, the world's largest, most watched Christian television network. They came to me twice during this last several years with proposals of me doing a TV show with them, for them, through them. And I, I was like, yeah, I don't really have the time for that. That's not something, you know, first I have a face for radio, so I don't know why you'd want me on television. And then, you know, I just don't have the bandwidth, the time, the energy to do another thing. But... I brought it also to the Josh Fund board. I brought it to the board of Near East Media, the nonprofit ministry that oversees all Israel news and all Arab news. I said, what do you guys think? Right? I'm under your oversight. Would you pray about it? Would you think about it? And we talked about it and we prayed about it. And in the end, they both felt unanimously that this TBN TV show, the Rosenberg Report, what it became – was in fact from the Lord and was something that was part of God building these platforms here in Israel, in Jerusalem, for me to educate the church worldwide without having to jump on a plane all the time. And of course, the Joshua Fund itself, this podcast didn't exist several years ago. It has emerged in this period of, Lord, how can I keep educating and ministering without traveling so much away from my wife, away from my my kids away from the day-to-day -day ministry that you've given me here. How do, how do I do that? And this podcast and the, and the other work of the Joshua Fund has emerged. So I just give you that as a personal example. Uh, but I would encourage you to pray. If you feel like you're in a phase of life that you feel restricted, I want to encourage you not to be bitter about that, not to be frustrated, but say, all right, Lord, why? What do you want me to be doing instead of, traveling and going and going maybe. So I, I, I'm not trying to apply my specific, you know, applications to your life. I'm just saying maybe the Lord's stirring in you, 
like you're doing a lot of traveling or a lot of ministry outside your home now, but maybe something's coming. Maybe a change is coming, a change that you want, or maybe it's a change you don't want. But you need to be asking the Lord, can I lead, meaning influence people, make a difference in people's lives if I can't go, if you tell me to stay? And how do I do that, Lord? Paul had an incredibly effective ministry. You can have an incredibly effective ministry. I'll, I'll, you know, I said it's part of my ending here, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Uh, my parents uh, are in full-time ministry. They have been for more than 20 years. They weren't even believers for the first 30-some years of their lives. They came to faith in the 1970s during the Jesus movement, during the Jesus revolution. They got radically saved. My father from an Orthodox Jewish background. My mom from a nominal Christian background, but she'd never heard the gospel. They came to faith in their, in their young 30s. And over time, as they led me to faith and, and, and ministered to me and my sisters, and the Lord called them into full-time ministry. They set up a ministry called Ministry Architecture. I won't go get into it now, but they've traveled all over the world to do ministry. But now they're in their 80s, and they are not physically able to travel like they used to. And it's difficult. It's difficult. They are at a stage of life that can be frustrating. It could be embittering. The challenge for them is we're under house arrest. It's not our choice. It's not what we want, but it's where we are now. How can we be fruitful? How can we be faithful? How can we have a sense of purpose and mission, even when we can't do all the things that we want to do for Jesus? How do we do the things that he is asking us in this new phase of life? I just encourage you to be thinking these things through. And uh, I pray for you to be encouraging and praying for the pastors and ministry leaders here in the land, praying for the Joshua team, that we can help encourage work of the kingdom to grow and mature and bear much fruit here in the epicenter. Well, that's uh, our message for today. These are the things we were sharing with the pastors and ministry leaders here in Israel and among Palestinians. And I hope it was encouraging for you as well. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us for the next edition of Inside the Epicenter. I'm Joel Rosenberg, uh, wishing that Carl Muller was here, but I'm glad that he's getting a few days of R&R. And uh, we look forward to being with you on the next edition the next podcast of Inside the Epicenter. God bless you. Finding uplifting news in today's headlines is often like searching for a needle in a haystack. At the Story Behind podcast, we believe in the power of finding heartwarming tales and are happy to share empowering stories with you every week. Hear about how Steve Harvey surprised a dying man on Family Feud with $25,000. Get inspired by the note a waitress received from a patron dining alone. And even hear about how one VIP passenger made a hardworking pilot get emotional before his flight. To start listening to the Story Behind podcast, visit lifeaudio.com or search Story Behind on your favorite podcast platform.